Fanning the Embers The political climate in 1932 was incredibly tense. There were six million unemployed in Germany. Our region was hit very hard. Communists were strong in our area, and the socialists also had large segments of the population supporting them. The Nazis were gaining in strength and were even more militant than the communists. They were fighting in the open, strutting about and beating people in the streets. We weren't alarmed by the Nazis because they weren't in power. They seemed to us more like rowdies and ruffians than a menace to the state. At least this was the picture I got from my parents and other adults around me whenever I heard them discuss politics. I used to listen to the radio and heard Hitler's shrill harangues. Little by little, I picked up what the political parties were all about. There was tremendous social agitation and huge political rallies. Everyone anticipated a major event because the economic situation was so desperate. My parents talked about politics endlessly. It seemed they never talked about anything else. Before the elections that gained the Nazi party the largest number of seats, we thought that Hitler would never win. We believed there would be too much opposition to him, that the other parties would block his moves. In fact, just the opposite happened. The right-wing and center-leaning nationalist parties regarded the Communist Party as their main opposition. Many people, at least in our area, expected the Communists to win. So, following the elections in July and November of 1932, when both the Nazi Party and the Communist Party attracted strong support, Hitler skillfully used fear of communism to swing the moderate parties behind him. By manipulating the Red Scare, Hitler managed to attain power with support from the moderates. I remember my father's prognostications. If Hitler gains power, he won't last more than six months. Hitler doesn't know economics. He can't run Germany without knowing economics. He can't run a complex government in a modern society. The elections were close. In our region, the Nazi party wasn't strong, but that didn't make any difference. After a series of weak, short-lived governments, Hitler was asked to become chancellor at the end of January 1933. My parents were stunned. They couldn't imagine what the next step would be. They knew Hitler's political and social philosophy, but didn't take him seriously. My father described him as an adventurer who couldn't hold things together. He thought the economy would collapse under Hitler. My father misjudged Hitler completely, as did many others inside and outside Germany. People deluded themselves. They thought Hitler could be controlled, or they brushed him off as a temporary aberration that would soon disappear. And they were so mournfully wrong. Hitler dominated everyone around him, using surprise, propaganda, and violently repressive tactics. He lasted much longer and did indescribably more harm than was ever predicted. Within a year of taking office, Hitler had eliminated all the other political parties. Germany became a one-party state. Hitler forced everyone to fall in line or risk severe penalties or death. Shortly after the Nazi party assumed power, my uncle Josef was savagely beaten. The skin across much of his body turned blue with terrible bruising. The assailants warned him to clear out of Bochum. A foreign newspaper printed a picture of him to illustrate Nazi brutality. My uncle was a bellwether in 1933, a sign of what was to come. He owned a fashionable shoe store in nearby Bochum that was favorably located and always crowded with customers whenever I was there. It was a gold mine, according to my father. 
He was hospitalized for two weeks. When he was discharged, he came to our house to hide. Since his picture had been published abroad, he was afraid of being beaten again or killed. For six weeks, he hid in a small room in our attic, terrified of being found and too scared to return to Bochum. We never knew why he was attacked. My parents immediately assumed that it was a personal attack and not an assault against Jews. Such was their faith in German civilization. I now think that his business success had aroused poisonous envy and made him an early victim. He was certainly not a communist. On the contrary, he was an outright capitalist. Around that same time, the principal of the Freie Schule in Wattenscheid, an admirable man called Rechtel Monk, who was a true democrat and a pacifist, was summarily exiled by the Nazis to a one-room school in a remote part of Germany. Rumors of other attacks and demotions circulated, and many reports of these appeared in the newspapers abroad. But Uncle Josef was the only Jew we knew to whom this sort of thing had happened. My parents shrugged it off. This isn't the end of the world, they said. Maybe he did some harm to someone, and that person took revenge. But after that, Uncle Josef was afraid to stay in Germany. He sold his business and moved to Palestine. There were no currency restrictions yet, so he took all the money he had with him. He left Germany with his family in 1933. Unemployment went down swiftly after Hitler rose to power. He built armaments and prepared for war. The economy recovered in a phenomenal way. Our stores were crowded from morning till evening. We could barely handle the volume. The next disturbing incidents took place at my gymnasium. Students began joining the Hitler Youth. Soon they were wearing the uniform, brown shirt, black pants, and big belt, to school. Teachers also joined the Nazi party. The Nazi party anthem, Host Veselit, and other songs associated with the Nazis were sung at class meetings. I was also the only Jewish boy in my class, and eventually I was the only one in the class who didn't belong to the Hitler Youth. The odd thing is that, even though they belonged to the Hitler Youth, many classmates were still my friends. Most of them didn't stop talking to me. It was like the Boy Scouts, at first. Simply a club they joined that I didn't. All of them knew I was Jewish, yet they didn't ostracize me. In the early years, I felt only slight discomfort, but the strain increased inexorably as time went on. Before 1933, there was little cohesion among Jews in Wattenscheid. My father, for one, had a low opinion of the services at the local synagogue. Every year on the high holidays on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, our family used to walk to and from the synagogue in Gelsenkirchen, four kilometers each way. After 1933, though, the Jewish communities in Wattenscheid began to come together. Since Jews were excluded from clubs and activities, we created our own groups and social events. A varied and active community life developed for those few remaining years. Every Friday night and Saturday, for Shabbat, all the young people flocked to the synagogue. When my brothers and I got involved, our parents were drawn in too. My father joined us regularly, even though he had seldom gone to synagogue before. He wasn't a religious man, but he came with us because he felt he should. It was remarkable to see all the Jews in synagogue. We never lacked a minion or quorum. Until then, such participation had been impossible. People drew together as the larger community pushed them out. 
Now, synagogue became the center of our lives. Vattenscheidt was too small to have a rabbi of its own. Instead, we had a cantor who also acted as rabbi and gave sermons, but whose main occupation was as a teacher in the Freie Schule. Cantor Oppenheim had been my class teacher in 1932, my final year there, and his brilliant daughter, a professor of linguistics who had a doctorate in pedagogy and had specialized in English, had been our first English tutor. Long established, though small, the synagogue was furnished with simple benches. Women sat in the balcony and men on the main floor. A short distance away was the Gemeindehaus, the community center, where Cantor Oppenheim lived in the room upstairs. Downstairs, there were meeting rooms and games rooms with ping-pong tables and chess, checkers, and card tables. We organized frequent events and many Zionist activities. Every Saturday afternoon, we held an Oneg Shabbat, a Sabbath celebration, where Cantor Oppenheim told rabbinic stories and we sang Hebrew songs. The Cantor trained all the young men to daven, to pray. He taught us to read the Torah with neginot, the proper liturgical chant and traditional melodies. He instructed us in how to perform as the chazan, cantor, ourselves, and how to lead prayers. He gave us repeated opportunities to practice. On Friday evenings and Saturday mornings and even on holidays, the young boys had the honor of assisting him, taking over parts of the service. Cantor Oppenheim was a typical German schoolmaster. He had high standards and paid great attention to detail. Every phrase had to be exactly right. He wouldn't accept half-hearted attempts. I never forgot what he taught me and will always be grateful to him. I continued bravely on at the gymnasium in Wattenscheid while my brothers were pupils at a Jewish school in Gelsenkirchen, which they went to by streetcar every day. My brothers and I were quite different. I was a bony child and with my thatch of platinum blonde hair, I was nicknamed... Der Alte, the old one, by my classmates. My serious demeanor and my years with Baba Shoshi had made it easy for me to sit for hours with adults. Benno was becoming a tall, athletic fellow with red hair, fair skin, and large brown eyes. People often admired Benno's deep, dark eyes and Eddie's thick, wavy black hair. When Benno was little, Eddie and I used to tease him because he was the youngest. As he grew older and more wiry, we backed off. He was excellent at sports and gymnastics. He became a better soccer player than Eddie, who was good at every sport. Though I was keen about most athletics, my physical skills didn't match my enthusiasm, so my participation was limited. Besides, when I was 12, I began to wear glasses due to my nearsightedness. At first, I was ashamed of them, and used to put them on only in class to see the board. But after a while, I had to wear them even to play soccer, even though they risked falling off and breaking. So as time went on, I was usually found in the cheering section at soccer games. My brothers and I, especially Benno and I, were soccer fanatics. Our favorite team was Schalke 04, which won the German championship several times during the 1930s. Another team we followed was S.V. Hundrop, whose stadium was within walking distance of our home. Benno and I spent many a Sunday afternoon at the games, often to the consternation of our parents. I knew the player scores better than Benno did, 
but Benno knew them better than Eddie did. Eddie liked to do things rather than talk about them, whereas Benno compared records, discussed moves, and also played well himself. We all did well in school, but I felt increasingly uneasy at the local gymnasium. The usual salutation between teachers and students had become Heil Hitler, and even more Nazi songs were sung fervently at school assemblies. I knew it was only a matter of time before I'd be expelled, or something worse would happen. So in 1935, I told my father I wanted to join my brothers at the Jewish school. My father tried to dissuade me, because the Jewish school was mostly a primary school with a few classes for the higher grades, not like a gymnasium. Finally, he gave his consent. However, my father was right, and soon after changing schools, I told him that I would prefer a gymnasium after all. After a few months, I quit the Jewish school and enrolled at the gymnasium in Gelsenkirchen. Other Jewish boys from the area were there, and this lessened the pressure from Nazi sentiments and ideology. In 1935, Germany was now openly rearming, and many armaments were being produced in our region. Hitler began to urge the nation to protect itself in case of war by building bomb shelters, which the government would subsidize. Accordingly, my father applied for a subsidy and installed a shelter in our cellar. It was completely furnished and stocked with dried foods and other necessities. Living under extreme conditions was becoming imaginable, even palpable. Sometime that year, a letter arrived from Australia, like a voice from another world. It was from a man named Rosen, who had emigrated. He offered to reciprocate my father's generosity. Rosen had toiled in the coal mines near us until my father had given him a start in business. He was now successful in Australia and was confident that my father would do well there too. He urged my father to let him help us secure immigration papers. The man's gratitude and the offer astonished my father. In fact, when I think about it now, it seems to me it truly alarmed him. Rosen Textile Mills, Sydney, Australia, was the return address on the envelopes I would handle wonderingly. My father's response was consistently negative. He claimed he knew very little about Australia. Where's Australia? What's in Australia? He would mutter. Then my father ordered us to stop discussing the subject. He refused to move and never considered the opportunity properly. I can hardly bear to think how he must have begun to regret this decision very soon afterwards. Other people were leaving. In 1936, my bachelor uncle, Michel, who lived in our house and managed our furniture store, decided to pack up and get out of Germany. He went to live in Palestine, where he died in the 1960s. It had by then become Israel. I never saw him again after he left Germany. Later that year, a fire broke out in our clothing store, and a section of it burned. My father was arrested and accused of setting the fire, highly improbable since sales were booming. Erwin Schrock, a master tailor working for my parents, was also living over our store. He and his wife, Edwig, occupied the apartment next to ours. Edwig had become a nursemaid in our home at the age of 16 in 1923, before Eddie was born. Edwig and Erwin had virtually become a part of our family. They lived in the annex of our home because my parents wanted them nearby. Both my parents were deeply attached to the Schrocks, 
and the Shlaks were devoted to them. Baba Shoshi and Uncle Michel had both been very fond of golden-haired Edvich, whose Slavic face regularly burst into radiant smiles. My mother, an only child, treated Edvich like a beloved younger sister. Similarly, my father and Erwin were like brothers. Erwin came from Stettin in the province of Pomerania, a part of Germany now known as Stettin, Poland. In 1921, when he was 22, he began to work for my father and stayed with him from then on. Elvin was capable, good-looking, and elegant. He was also an intelligent, independent-minded man. My father trusted him completely and relied on him increasingly in business matters. After our store burned and my father was arrested, Elvin checked around the building. He found matches that had evidently been left by whoever had set the fire. He showed these to the police. They then arrested him too and charged him with being involved. My father was kept in the prison near Wattenscheid for four weeks. Erwin was held for two weeks. He testified unsuccessfully as a witness in my father's defense. Because German newspapers were severely censored by the authorities, we began buying Swiss German language papers from Bern and Zurich. In those newspapers, we read articles about Dachau, the camp, opened in 1933 in a suburb of Munich, was the first concentration camp created by Hitler. Jews and non-Jews, communists, socialists, and others who opposed Hitler's policies were being thrown into Dachau. People were suffering and dying there because of mistreatment, malnutrition, and slave labor. This was all well known at the time. My parents talked about it at home. Knowing this, we were relieved my father wasn't sent to a concentration camp. He was kept in an ordinary jail and underwent the usual prison treatment. Then he and Erwin were released, and the whole matter seemed to be put to rest. None of us talked about it afterwards. After this episode, the day's receipts from the stores were kept by Erwin. My father had begun to realize that we were losing our rights, yet he was determined not to be intimidated into leaving Germany. My parents often discussed the possibility of leaving. My father, however, felt there was no reason for him to have to leave. He would go on his own terms, or not at all. Losing his property, let alone his life, was not in his plans. By 1935-36, to 36, it was becoming clearer to him that all might not turn out well. But we were prosperous, and when people are living affluently in the country of their choice or birth, they don't readily detach themselves from it. More significantly, my father was 42 years old in 1936. For a man of that age with numerous attachments and dependents, emigration is a serious decision. Exile isn't an option that a responsible person chooses lightly. From late 1935 on, my parents' plan was to send their children away, starting with me. After that, they would see what happened. They thought they had some time, not expecting events to occur as quickly as they did. I continued at the gymnasium in Gelsenkirchen until the spring of 1937. I had just completed the German school system's Ovelsekunde Reife, which was similar to a junior matriculation or intermediate high school diploma. In another two years, I could have sat for the Abitur, or senior matriculation, but I couldn't continue there any longer. It was almost impossible 
by that point for a Jewish youth to attend a German gymnasium. The pressures were becoming overwhelming. The Hitler youth had by then been indoctrinated for several years. To hate Jews was their supreme mitzvah, their first commandment. One of their major tenets held that Jews were the cause of their unglück, their misfortune. Many young Nazis had a mystical feeling about Germany and about having a mission to fulfill. A main aim of this mission was to wipe out all the Jews in Germany. Jews were classified as rats, sewer rats, vermin. Hitler and his propagandists invade against Jews constantly. The evidence of this mountain of propaganda is still there for all to see in the press and posters of the time. The world had never seen its like, a truly modern weapon in ideological warfare. Schoolmates were baiting me and sneering, There's no place for you here. Why don't you go to the Holy Land? Why don't you get out of here? We have no use for you. You're responsible for all our troubles. They would become frenzied. It wasn't possible for me to study among them or to be among them. Hamburg and Cologne, which was closest to us, each had a Jewish gymnasium that covered only the intermediate level. In Frankfurt and Berlin, Jewish gymnasia offered the higher grades. I told my father that I could no longer attend a public gymnasium, that I couldn't stand it. Eddie had gone to Berlin the year before, after he graduated from the Jewish school in Gelsenkirchen. In Berlin, he was attending an ORT school, a trade school for Jewish boys run by the Organization for Rehabilitation through Training. My father suggested that I join Eddie in Berlin. As a result, I applied and was accepted at the Adith Israel Gymnasium in Berlin. I was 15 years old. It was time for a change. <laughs> 